Osiris. This is David from Beyond the Pond. Just want to tell you about another podcast on the Osiris Podcast Network that I very much enjoy. This is the Fear of a Craft Beer Planet podcast. This is a podcast all about craft beer from individuals who are in the craft industry that have been friends for several years. They talk a lot about beer. They also talk about a lot about music because the only thing they enjoy more than drinking and talking about beer is talking about excellent music. Therefore, it is a perfect thing to have on the Osiris Podcast Network. There's much talk about the industry. There's talk about beer trends, and it's presented in a freewheeling style that can only come from people that have been friends for the past 20 or even 25 years. They're really good guys. Uh, we've gotten to know them. I think we're going to have them on the podcast at some time in the future. And we think that if you enjoy both craft beer and music and who among us does not you should very much check out the fear of a craft beer planet podcast on the osiris podcast network Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 59 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are generally not jam bands. These are not Fish side projects, although nothing against Fish side projects. Because while we love Fish... We are fish fans. The problem with fish fans, sometimes they get a bit myopic. They don't see the forest for the trees. They will listen to their favorite fish shows over and over and memorize them like they can memorize the lines on the back of their hands. But when it comes to listening to other bands, they kind of stare at you blankly and they say there's bands other than fish. Jesus Christ, that's sad. And not only are there bands other than fish, but there are bands other than songless, white boy, wanky, fake funkadelic jam bands that play 45-minute jams, <laughs> two songs per set, three songs per set, and don't write any songs. There are songs out there, guys, that will blow your mind and will jam. It's amazing. Tell us how you, tell us how you feel, Brinkman. <laughs> <laughs> we're, here to, we're here to change your minds. We're here to change your lives and make everything 
better for all of you guys. Aren't we, Dave? Yes. That is all we're trying to do is make everything better for all you folks out there. All right. So today's episode, we're going to go as far back in time as we've ever gone back with fish. We're going back to Underhill, Vermont, to a steamy July day in the summer of 1988, to Pete's Fabulous Fish Festival, where we're going to talk about a phenomenal curtain with jam that we think you guys are going to absolutely love if you have not heard. If you have heard, we think that you are going to absolutely be blown away by the music that we have uh, found here to connect with the really cool jam that comes off of the curtain with. We're very excited to talk about this. And some of the themes which we're going to explore in this episode include deep, swirling guitars. The year was 1988. I was nine years old. In the incarnation of fish festivals. And on that note, let's get to the fish. guys so like we said at the top of the show we are going to focus on this is our first fish jam from the 80s for beyond the pond um we're definitely you know apologetic about that there are some great moments in the 80s and we plan on digging into a few here in the next uh you know couple of months next years however long this podcast goes we want to definitely highlight some 80s jams but we wanted to start it off with one of what we think is one of the best jams of the 80s um i think that this is definitely well known amongst people uh, fish fans that dive deep into the 80s but if you haven't heard this you're in for a major treat so um, this is the curtain with from july 23rd 1988 as we noted and believe it or not this is the second to last curtain with ever played until an 1178 show gap, it reemerged at Deer Creek on July 12, 2000. And one of the most unexpected bust outs probably in fish history. Um, this jam in particular here that we're going to be focusing on moves away from that really tranquil, serene space that the curtain with definitely finds itself in in some of its best versions to a legitimate Dave's Energy Guide before seamlessly fading back into the with conclusion. It's got a very early 70s deady kind of jam in this like hypnotic swirl of psychedelic guitar leads that kind of just, uh, you know, almost feels like a kaleidoscope, just kind of like going over and over and over again. It's almost like a washing machine of, of sound. It's really, really fascinating stuff. And uh, we definitely wanted to highlight this based on where a lot of our you know musical interests are at this point in time. And it's uh, the last three minutes of this where uh, things really start to get particularly heady. And uh, it shows you that Dave's energy guide, at one time, it was a real thing. And kind of stands to reason why everyone thinks that they hear Dave's energy guide teases at every show. Oh, they're teasing Dave's energy guide, D-E-G. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it really does kind of have a pattern that sounds sort of like uh, like disciplinary King Crimson. In fact, the uh, the... The uh, title track for that album kind of sounds a bit like Dave Energy, uh, Dave's Energy Guide. And also, aspects of this jam um, very much sound like the very recent 
Riley Walker, Steve Gunn, Ryan Jewell show from Union Pool in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, that uh, took place the night before this is being recorded. That show is up on the archive. Um, it's a beautiful display of uh, psychedelic guitar improvisation. And probably, if you haven't heard it yet, when you get done listening to this episode, go dial that up because it's, uh, it's something else. Yeah, I'm going to guess uh, as of recording time, we both have listened to this uh, show a collective five times or something like that. Because <laughs> I know I spun it a few times this morning. It was really fantastic stuff. But um, in terms of curtain widths, kind of from a historical standpoint, so a few notable curtain widths here. Um, August 29th, 1987 is very similar in many ways to uh, the famous Mockingbird. Uh, and this was played six months before that song debuted. Uh, February 7th, 1988 is kind of a precursor to this July 23rd, 1988 version. And then after the gap, uh, September 17th, 2000, uh, from Meriwether Post, you get uh, the second curtain width played um, after its huge, after its extended break. And this is probably the strongest of the 2000s versions. Uh, you can hear Trey in the slow riff section using a Leslie speaker that really uh, kind of amplifies the, the sound in a really unique way. And then closing out 2.0, famously they, they encored with the curtain with. This was the last song played before the breakup. And while part of the song is played in the wrong key, somewhat embarrassingly and in really showcase the problems that the band was facing on stage during Coventry. The closing jam is wholly unique for the song. And there's this note that they just hang on to for like 90 seconds. It's unbelievable. It just sounds like this band that does not want to die. And we've got October 26th of 2010. It's a very strong early 3.0 version. It's actually a, a very good show for that uh, October. June 10th, 2011, close set one. Otherwise, kind of a mess show, but it's a Friday jam. It's quite unique in its history. We've also got uh, June 28, 2012, very strong and tight version that features some excellent interplay between Trey and Paige. My only issue is that um, I kind of fear that every version of Curtain from here on out will contain the width. And while I don't dislike it, I kind of miss the without. I like it when they used to just end Curtain and slam into another song, in particular uh, the tweezer from December um, 14, 1995 from Binghamton, of course, or You and Draw Myself from uh, November 28, 1997, that being the Curtain Yem first set opener. Not much to complain about there, obviously. Yeah, I can't. I can't disagree with you here. I mean, I really actually agree with you on this. Um, I, I wish that they would mix it up a little bit more, both for the reasons that you laid out, um, but also just like the excitement and the unknown of them getting to that end of the curtain. And are they going to slow down or are they going to just speed it up and go into a different song? Um, I'd love to have more curtain uh, fades into a different song rather than Haley's fading into a different song, you know, mix Haley's up a little bit with a couple jams. But um, there have been only two curtain withouts, if you will, since 2000. Uh, Super Bowl had one on uh, uh, July 3rd, 2011, a show we talked about recently with Rob Mitchum. That went into uh, Colonel Forbins. And then August 28th, 2012, a fantastic and underrated show from St. Louis right before the uh, really excellent Dick's run. That show 
any of our listeners who have not listened to it to that uh, recently, highly, highly recommend going back to it. Excellent show there. Um, it's got, it has like a really good limb by limb, right? Yeah, the limb by limb is kind of the jamming highlight in the uh, back half of set two, but really all of set, the second set, you get a uh, Chalk Dust Torture opener that goes into, I think it's Shafty, that um, really, really showcases what they're about to do with the song on a regular basis improvisationally. One thing about playing the curtain width is that it usually guarantees you a good 14 to 15 minutes, so if the curtain is not your favorite song... You can uh, run to the bathroom, get a beer. Most people love that song. I like it too, but I'm also looking for times to use the bathroom when there's no one in there. You can go in really quickly and then get out when they're still doing the composed part. So it's got that going for it. Absolutely. But so what exactly is the uh, overall significance of Pete's fabulous fish set, uh, Fish Fest? This was the third to last show before Fish left Vermont for Colorado. And I guess by our count, this is the third early Fish Festival, being um, August 21st, 1987, from Ian's Farm, which there may have been more dogs than people in the audience. <laughs> and August 29th, 1987, from the ranch as well. Yeah, and in that spirit, this is kind of a three-set monster. It's got horns, it's got guests, it's got some of the most classic fish songs that have ever been played all in a single show. Uh, any pictures from this just showcase the you know, big green mountains in Vermont, uh, blue skies, everybody looks happy, everybody looks like they're just enjoying themselves, and everyone looks woefully ignorant of what fish will become in just like five or six years uh, time when they're playing at like Sugarbush down the road. Um, but this is also a really notable show in the fact that three big fish songs make their debut. Probably the biggest of all is Weekapog Groove, which had never been played before this show. Um, Walk Away debuted a great cover that the band has utilized a ton over the years. Um, and the song No Dogs Allowed, of which the latter section would become Divided Sky before long. Um, or would be tacked on to Divided Sky, I should say. Um, so this festival also, it took place at Pete Danaforth's house. So Pete's Fabulous Fish Festival. Both he and Dave the Truth Grippo sit in on horns throughout much of the show. And just a quick run through the set list. Just consider all of these songs that were played at the show. You got Forbins and a Mockingbird, Mike's Groove, the first ever Mike's Groove, Lizards, Possum, Walk Away, Fire, The Curtain With, Wilson, Antelope, LaGrange, Alumni, Jimmy, Alumni, Peaches and Regalia, You Enjoy Myself, Harry Hood, and Slave to the Traffic Light. All in the same show. It's it's a damn near perfect show on paper. In reality, I'm I'm assuming it was a blast to be there. Certainly, um, presumably, both the audience and the band were kind of under the influence of something or other, and it results in somewhat <laughs> slow tempos and kind of a devil may care attitude to some of the compositions. Plus, Fish had yeah. shitty gear in 1988, kind of tinny sounding. But, you know, probably everyone in that field or room knew everybody else in that field, so it's likely you had a really good time if you were there. And seriously, uh, were you there? If any of our listeners were at or know someone who was at Pete's Fabulous Fish Fest, we want to hear from you. Do you have an 
open invitation to come on the podcast and talk about how things were back in the day and what you did and how you hung out with Trey's dog and how Trey's dog shat in the field or whatever. We definitely uh, want to hear from you. And this was also back when Fish incorporated jazz standards from the real book into their sets, which is kind of cute. You hear them doing uh, do Gillington <laughs> Satin Doll and Blue Bassa and, of course, Peaches and Regalia, which is also from the real book. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, this show is um, kind of more significant for the big songs. It's historical. It's a good historical curiosity. I, I would say it's kind of one of those must-hear shows for anyone who's you know a diehard fan of the band. You kind of have to hear these um, you know tentpole shows that they that they played. Um, also, you know, there's something really innocent about the fact that. Like five days after the show, they would drive cross country to Colorado for their first significant shows outside of the Northeast Kingdom, which, you know, just thinking of Fish as like just this kind of Northeastern college bar band um, who's about to go to Colorado and be a bar band, but like they're going to set the roots out West and that's going to define their story going forward, leading all the way up to, you know, how many years they played at Dick's. Um, it's definitely a really cool moment. Also, you know, this is a part of a number of early proto festivals, Ian's farm, the ranch, Arrowhead Ranch, Amy's Farm, and Sugarbush in 94 and 95 that really helped to like create this mindset for the band that they were in their best environment when they were playing in a big field with no rules, far away from society, which ultimately leads to the Clifford Ball, the Great Went, the Lemon Wheel, on and on and on, still happening to uh, to this day, although we had... Um, bit of a blip this past summer and we're hoping that we can get back on track in 2020 if you will um but you know this is just a really significant moment for the band just in terms of the direction they were going in uh kind of large scale creatively if it's uh more of a party though in in the overall show sense yeah when you think about it it only took them eight years to get from pete's fabulous fish fest to the clifford ball it's pretty impressive pretty wild it's really wild. Like, there are very few bands that make the leap from kind of local novelty oddity where a bunch of friends get together and get wasted and have a good time to being able to make a living out of this on a day-to-day basis to then play in front of 100,000 people in a field in rural uh, New York is a pretty massive feat. But fish were that good, which is how they were able to pull it off. So now let's listen to um, a three to five minute segment of uh, this jam being the curtain with into Dave's energy guide back into with.
right, guys. We hope that you enjoyed that swirling, psychedelic guitar riffs into Neverland and back from Trey and the cacophonous sounds from the rest of the band of that curtain with from Pete's Fabulous Fish Festival. So segment one, we're going to focus exactly on those deep swirling guitars. We've got two guitars here that we want you guys to listen to. If you've been following us on Twitter, you know that we love these albums, but we wanted to feature them here because we think that they will be very fitting for what you guys uh, have been into in terms of our conversations with our listeners, as well as um, based on this jam here in question. So first thing we got up is the Gunn Trzinski duo. That is Steve Gunn and John Trzinski. Steve Gunn on guitar, John Trzinski on drums. We're going to feature a cut off of the album Bayhead, which came out in 2017. The song we're going to play is Gunter. So this is the third record from the Brooklyn guitar drum psych folk duo. You guys know how we feel about Steve Gunn. If you don't, this might be your first episode. We love Steve Gunn. And his work here with John Trzinski is loose, psychedelic, drony, and extended. It's very jammy. We love it a lot. Their songs grow and they breathe with ease. They move from single riff ideas into a swell of noise and zones. You hear blues, you hear jazz, Eastern meditation, classic rock, free folk, drone. I mean, it's just across the map in these like nine to 18 minute long songs that when you listen to them, you just get absolutely lost within it. You kind of start like nodding your head and you go into this kind of alternate like dream space and then you're zapped back out and you're like, what the fuck just happened? And it was all awesome the whole time. Um, Like most of Steve Gunn's work as a solo artist, uh, this is kind of a road weary record can be best understood and appreciated behind the wheel. Maybe driving through the West, through the deserts of Southern Utah, Northern Arizona. Um, and Gunter, the song that we're featuring here, is perhaps the peak of the overall record. It's got this very connected build towards a near cacophonous swirl of guitar and drums. It's utterly hypnotic and not unlike the curtain with that we're playing here. Um, of note, there are loads of Gun Trzinski shows on the NYC Taper site as well as Joel Burke's Sweet Blog. We'd encourage all of you to check them out as that is the best environment to hear them in. And like I said, if you like our podcast, there is little chance you will not enjoy this record or this duo. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Steve Gunn's solo releases for Matador certainly showcase him as um, both a very good songwriter and vocalist in addition to being a guitar player. What's cool about the Gunn, Trzinski duo stuff is that it only showcases his uh, his guitar playing, which can get seriously out there and seriously loud. And I know um, as much as I love his most recent album, The Unseen In Between, I also love it when he uh, gets a little bit freaky, like he kind of did yeah. on his earlier Matador solo records. That's what the Gun Trzinski duo is all about. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to listen to the song Gunter here off of Bayhead, which came out in 
2017, we would definitely encourage you guys to check this out from the Gun Trzinski duo. Okay, Brian, thanks for uh, showcasing that Gun Trzinski Duo album record, which I like quite a bit. So I'm going to talk about something somewhat similar. I'm going to talk about a recent album by a fellow named Matt LaJoy, spelled L-A-J-O-I-E. The album is called The Center and the Fringe. We're going to listen to the first song called The Plane of Return. It's uh, one of four songs on the record. I think I actually heard this uh, song for the first time on um, Jeff Conklin's Avant Ghetto radio show on WFMU. I think we've uh, spoken about that before on Beyond the Pond. I believe it's live at midnight on Sundays for three hours. And if you can't stay up, you can stream on the WFMU app. He's an excellent curator of psychedelic rock, both modern and classic, and a huge deadhead. I think he actually might have appeared on our uh Osiris sister podcast broke down pot at one point. So if you're listening to this podcast, definitely make it a point to check out his show. So this album is a collection of uh, four guitar instrumentals recorded live to the floor with no overdubs. And it's actually best described at is, and uh, this is Brian's description. In fact, I'm kind of stealing it from him as weightless falling through spider webs. Or as I like to think of it, sort of Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. This is a very chill, meditative album that thrives on guitar loops and repetition. It makes for ideal headphone listening late at night, but also something to greet a sunrise with. And really, there isn't a heck of a lot of information on this guy online except for his Bandcamp page, which uh, I guess it suggests he's actually been at this for over 20 years. He's got releases under multiple aliases. This may be his first release under his actual name. And I'm really looking forward to uh, going backwards down the number line, so to speak, and diving into Matt LaJoy's prior works as a sideman and uh, under some different aliases. But, uh, I mean, really what got me hooked was certainly listening to this first song, Plane of Return, it's the best introduction to the guy as opposed to hearing me gush about him and kind of you'll know right off the bat whether or not this is for you. So let's listen to Plane of Return by Matt LaJoy.
right, guys. So moving on here into new album recommendations. So we have uh, definitely, like we said in our last episode, featured a ton of new music this year already. Dave and I have been going crazy on the indie blogs and on Bandcamp, even on Spotify, amassing our list. I think that at this point in time, I could I could very easily put out a top 20 of 2019 already. Um, this has been one of my favorite first quarters of the year musically. Uh, definitely the last half decade. There's just been, it has not been a slow build at all here in 2019. It's just like records are coming out and coming out and Every record I seem to listen to leads me to another new record that just came out. And um, this one that I'm going to feature here is very much in the spirit of this. Uh, this is Nate Woolley's Columbia Icefield. Uh, this is the fifth record from the Brooklyn by way of Pacific Northwest Avant Jazz Trumpeter. And the record is dedicated to the Columbia Icefield, which is the largest in the Rockies and directly feeds the Columbia River and impacts the entire ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest. The record itself, it's just three tracks. It's a testament to the meaning of humanity and the natural world, the, uh, the, the movable and the unmovable colliding. The main question going into this record from Wooly was, how does one communicate the organic and the foreign through music? Uh, no matter the subject, no matter how difficult that is, there is something remarkably human about this album that will really connect with anyone who's uh, who is going to sit down and really test the patience to listen to this. It's a total zone record. Each of the three tracks stretches beyond 15 minutes and each passes through spaces of simple melodic beauty and those that deconstruct sound and rhythm with ease and accepted freedom. There's very little tension across a somewhat tense album rigidity is part of the point but there's very little fear on the part of the musicians that the whole thing will fall apart and even if it does you get this sense that that will not be a bad thing fans of the next who i've featured in this slot twice over the last two years for their albums body and unfold will definitely find something to love here as will fans of our recent episode with rob mitchum I believe this record was actually recommended to me by Joel Burke, who we talk about a ton in that record and has been mentioned at least once in this episode. Um, but if you're into that type of music, if you like November 94 Fish, June 94, June 95, February 03, August 2011, as well as the Drowned into a, a song I heard the ocean sing from the Baker's Dozen, you will definitely, definitely find music that you love here. This is a album that is very much up my alley. I've listened to it a ton here, kind of taking it on walks with me through snowy Denver. And I definitely think that you guys will enjoy this as well. Dave, what do you got for us? I have the latest self-titled album, despite it being their sixth album from the dystopian ice princesses that comprise Lady Tron. This is the first Lady Tron album since 2011's Gravity the Reducer. And this is a band that specializes in music that, while being cold, frightening, not so much dark as light absorbing, is nonetheless very catchy and, dare I say it, fun. So, for those unfamiliar with this band, um, they actually originated in Liverpool, England back in 1999, consisting of Helen Marney on lead vocals and synthesizers. 
Mira Arroyo, she's a, a Bulgarian extraction on vocals and synthesizers. And then the two dudes hanging in the back, Ruben Wu and synthesizers, and Daniel Hunt, who I think does uh, synthesizers, vocals, and some of the guitars. All of them contribute to songwriting and programming. And initially, Ladytron kind of got lumped in the late 90s with uh, Electro Clash. In the early 2000s, they had singles that were kind of tailor-made for um, Electro Indie Dance Night, songs like 17, Playgirl, and Blue Jeans, kind of harmless, fizzy fun. However, this really changed forever back in 2005 with uh, the rather game-changing album called Witching Hour, which reestablished them as um, Sirens of the Apocalypse, as they say in the second song on uh, their new album. Lots of indebtedness to shoegaze music, throbbing paranoia, and that album had the song called Destroy Everything You Touch, easily their best song and one that hasn't aged a day. So the new Lady Tron album is uh, kind of dystopian album referencing fires, dead zones, things like falling from your tower of glass. It's pretty great. It's an excellent cyber goth soundtrack that kind of sounds more appropriate ever in these times. Whenever I listen to Lady Tron, I think of, um, if you're familiar, in the 90s, MTV's Liquid Television had uh, the cartoon Aeon Flux, which was also made into a movie with uh, Charlize Theron, sort of um, a woman soldier slash spy running in a dystopian environment. And Lady Tron are very good at uh, dance beats, synthesizers, and droney melodic vocals that uh, get the point across. But I really like this latest album. This is not a band that I would have thought of in 1999 that would have six records, let alone ones that I would still be very much listening to in 2019. But it's very, very good. So uh, good on you, Lady Tron. All right. So for our final section of tonight's episode, the year was 1988. I was but three years old, which is kind of crazy to think about because my son is three years old. So what is he going to be talking about in, oh my goodness, 2038? Is that when it's going to be when he talks about 2018? I have no idea. No, 2048. Jesus. Hmm. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what will what will the music that came out in 2018 sound like to him then? I was uh, nine years old. The Mets are really good in 88. They lost the Dodgers in the playoffs. I was not happy about that. They should have won. It's a tough year. Plus then Kirk Gates. Fucking Mike Sochi, man. Yeah. Tough year for <laughs> you, man. Well, we're going to focus on two positive moments from 1988. Two really just fantastic records that I think go without saying both of these records have touched so many different bands that we featured on this episode or excuse me, have featured on this podcast and that we both love a lot. Um, And so we're going to just going to jump in here and talk about these because it's always fun to imagine, you know, you go back to 1988, you think about fish at that point in time, how young, how idealistic, how naive they were looking ahead to the future. And there were some bands that had already were quite established, putting out some really fantastic music. So I am going to talk about a uh, record by a band that has been in the news here lately for um, somewhat sad reasons. Uh, and that is Talk Talk. 
I'm going to talk about the album Spirit of Eden, and I'm going to feature the opening track of the record, The Rainbow. And before I jump into all of this, I would encourage all of you to go back to episode six, Fukuoka Twist, and listen to Dave break down this album brilliantly. I just went back and did it to make sure I wasn't doing any sort of real crossover, and there's some really fantastic stuff in there from Dave. Um, cool to hear that we were somewhat fully formed ourselves in episode six. Um, the things that you need to know now. Talk Talk was essentially an 80s pop band compared often to Duran Duran. But lead singer, songwriter, guitarist Mark Hollis was influenced by John Coltrane and Debussy always felt the need to justify the fact that the band had to rely on synthesizers early on because of the cost of recording with acoustic instrumentation. They released their most successful album, The Color of Spring, in 1986 and used the money earned to finance Spirit of Eden. A record that relies on silence must be listened to in full and has influenced at the very least 95% of the post-1988 bands that we've, we've featured here on Beyond the Pond. What I'll say is this to add to it. This is one of the most courageous, boundary-pushing records ever made. A sense of melancholy lingers throughout. And while these songs are ultimately simple, they sound so labored over in ways that few rock records ever are. Jazz minimalism, avant-garde, noise, ambient, post-rock, it's all contained in these songs. Without this record, there are no albums like Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in Space or Kid A. The philosophy that's built into these songs is that it's better to play one note perfectly than two notes badly. This was recorded when Mark Hollis was 32 years old. He was a new father. And you can hear this like silence of adulthood and the rising guitar strumming in the song Eden and the aching love that every parent, every new parent feels. The album begins, the song The Rainbow begins with nearly two minutes of silence and it's meant to test your patience before a brief reward. The journey as you're listening to this record is the reward. Um, I know, Dave, you'll want to say something here about Mark Hollis. Uh, he unfortunately left us only a few short weeks ago. Uh, really brilliant, amazing songwriter and composer. And um, I feel very, very lucky to have listened to this record, to feel a lot from this record, and to know how much of this record has influenced so many of our favorite bands. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely, like you said, you don't get to Kid A without Spirit of Eden. And just the evolution in Mark Hollis's band and Talk Talk from getting their start as kind of like Duran Duran influenced New Waivers to get in the Spirit of Eden in the course of, goodness, maybe about six years. Just uh, the straight up evolution is almost like they kind of knew where they wanted to go from the beginning. But once they had some commercial success, they just decided to throw it all the way and go for it. I mean, even... More so, the album that came out after Spirit of Eden, Laughing Stock, which was officially the final Talk Talk album, it really takes those ambitions even farther out into the atmosphere. I mean, there's really serious pockets of silence in that album, and even more so on the one uh, Mark Hollis solo record from 1998, all of which are very much worth listening to. 
I think Laughing Stock is great. I know some people prefer it to Spirit of Eden. Um, I think I still like Eden a little bit better. It's maybe slightly less esoteric. But yeah, I mean, everything, Brian, that you said, it absolutely deserves to be listened to in full. It deserves to be listened to um, from everybody who has listened to this podcast. It's just there's serious moments of striking beauty on that album. And while certainly Mark Hollis had faded away um, from public life, I know he really hadn't done anything musically for, goodness, for almost like 20 years at this point. But um yeah, I mean, as you've been seeing in the news and the music press, is death is being uh, solidly, solidly felt throughout. So, rest Absolutely. in peace, man. Yeah. So let's listen to a little bit of the rainbow here, which is uh, just a stunning opener. You get a real sense of the kind of immediacy of the reward within the song, and then kind of the fade back into silence here. So, on a less somber note, I'm going to talk about a band that I don't think I've ever talked about on Beyond the Palm before, which is kind of surprising to me. But that band is Sonic Youth. The album is 1988's Daydream Nation. And the song we're going to play is um, Eric's Trip, sung by um, Lee Ronaldo, kind of the uh, third singer in the band. So... Really, Sonic Youth is one of those bands that could easily have their own podcast, given that their discography spans nearly 30 years, beginning in the early 80s and concluding in their dissolution, which what I want to say was 2011, kind of sparked by a 
some fidelity issues involving their famously married front persons, Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore. That's an entirely different story for an entirely different podcast, though. But simply speaking, if you enjoy such things as thick, dueling guitars, using the name of catchy, epic, quote, alternative rock, Daydream Nation is kind of generally thought of as the first great Sonic Youth album and one of the most enduring albums of the 1980s. This is the one album that has the song Teenage Riot on it, which is the single most streamed Sonic Youth song on Spotify, an incredibly catchy rock and roll jam for this day, not to mention the uh, main set closer of most of their shows that I ended up seeing. And Deju Nation's double album, and because many of the songs thrive on length and repetition, like the appropriately named The Sprawl, the song uh, Across the Breeze, Hey Joni, uh, all completely classic examples of drawn-out guitar noise, albeit with a driving backbeat courtesy of the drummer Steve Shelley. And also, not for nothing, that, uh, like I said, third vocalist and kind of the secret weapon, Lee Ronaldo, is an avowed deadhead. So what's kind of cool about Sonic Youth is, um, like your favorite band, if you're listening to this podcast, man, they had phases. Uh, the early 80s stuff was extremely noisy. They sort of latched mightily onto what you could call alternative nation in the late 80s and early 90s because they made videos for MTV that got played, like uh, for the song Bull and the Heather, 1994, the song 100% off uh, the album Dirty from 1992. And then kind of in the late 90s, they gradually made the shift to more subdued, epic-length songs, like the song The Diamond Sea off of uh, the Washing Machine album. And then kind of in the early 2000s, it became a very cool hybrid of uh, television and The Grateful Dead with the incredible Murray Street and Sonic Nurse albums, which I think were uh, 2002 and 2004, respectively. So there's a ridiculous amount of exploration involved with Sonic Youth. I know that they just released a bunch of live shows to Nugs.net, and I think I saw them myself about eight times beginning in 1999, up through their disillusion. I mean, you can easily lose yourself in Sonic Youth discography and the live bootlegs. And to this day, the bass player, singer Kim Gordon, is kind of seen as a, a paradigm of all things incredibly cool. Now, the fashion in which they ended for a little while kind of at first poisoned a bit of the back catalog for me because, you know, so much is made up of the fact that. You know, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, they were married and had a kid. They happily settled down in Northampton and kind of the family life was what uh, was driving the band. To see it kind of explode like that was a little strange, but I'm starting to get around it and uh, kind of on a bit more of a Sonic Youth kick myself lately. So let's listen to a Lee Ronaldo song. This is uh, the song Eric's Trip, which is maybe his signature entry to the Sonic Youth catalog and um a nice noisy jam they were actually still playing up to their final days. It was still in the set list on a pretty often basis. So this is a song off of Daydream Nation, maybe the best Sonic Youth album, certainly one of the better known, and uh, well worth your time. So let's listen to it. Thank you. 
right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here in episode 59. We broke down the curtain with from Underhill, Vermont, at Pete's Fabulous Fish Festival in 1988. So just really quickly going over the songs we played in this episode. Segment one, Deep Swirling Guitars. We had the Gun Trzinski duo, Gunter, off of the album Bayhead. Matt LaJoy, Plane of Return, off of The Center and the Fringe. In segment two, the year was 1988. We featured Talk Talk, The Rainbow, off of Spirit of Eden, as well as Sonic Youth, Eric's Trip, off of Daydream Nation. And we featured two new albums that we definitely recommend you all listen to, Nate Wooley's Columbia Icefield and Lady Tron, Lady Tron. So, just a reminder, we are available on social media. On Twitter, we're at underscore beyond the pond, one word. On Simplecast, on beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. That's uh, kind of our homepage. You can find us on uh, Spotify. All the songs that we feature in a given episode, provided they are available on Spotify, we uh, put them into the playlist which is getting rather unwieldy at this point that's uh beyond the pond podcast songs check out our uh sister podcast the osiris podcast network that is uh osirispod.com o-s-i-r-i-s pod.com and leave us a review on itunes we will read them we enjoy reading them and to do so kind of pushes us up the uh, apple recognition ladder in terms of music podcasts Absolutely. And from a publishing structure standpoint, so we've been giving you guys a lot of new Beyond the Pond episodes over the first quarter of 2019, kind of matching our excitement with new music as it's been coming out in 2019. Um, Taking a slight step back here, going back to the regular publishing structure of every other Tuesday. Most Tuesdays have no feel. Um, we want to be able to get these out for you here as we're now making that turn towards summer tour. Uh, you should have at this point in time heard at least one of our top albums of the 2010s episode. I think it was 2010 dropped here just about a week or so ago. Keep an eye out for 2011 as we keep chugging along that fun little project here. And uh, we've got some great episodes coming up over the next uh couple of weeks as we move into spring and then into summer also just like to remind you guys um you hear something and you like it a lot go to a band's Bandcamp page buy a vinyl buy a cd buy a tape go to the show buy a ticket buy some merch because while it's certainly important to listen to music it's also important to make sure that uh these artists and musicians are able to make some kind of a living doing so so it's not just enough to listen to Spotify. If you listen to something, find yourself 10 or 20 times, then by all means, go get a physical copy of it because it's uh, absolutely worth it and will help support these artists throughout. Absolutely. Seeing these bands live, going and buying something on Bandcamp is highly encouraged here by Beyond the Pond. We will lodge you for doing so. So on that note, come back in two weeks. We'll all join hands we'll do some kind of kumbaya we will rise up come together come together come together 
Oh God, that was corny. But in any event, we look forward to going beyond the pond. Osiris.